Well, welcome to Sojourn. We're glad that you're here. As Evan said, if you're new here, uh, we'd love to meet you uh, after the service. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. And um, man, it's just good to gather with uh, everyone this morning. I know a lot of people are, are traveling. Maybe you're here because you came to visit someone this morning, but we're grateful uh, that all of us are able to gather here this morning on this Memorial Day weekend. Uh, you know, it shouldn't be, I hope it's not lost on us that uh, Memorial Day is a time where we as a, uh, as a country uh, remember those who have lost their lives or sacrificed their lives uh, in a fight for freedom, not only for us, uh, but for those around the world, we are gathering in a elementary, I mean, elementary school, middle school cafeteria this morning because we have uh, a, a, the freedom to do that uh, in our country. And so we should praise God for that and the men and women who have served uh, to make that possible. So before we begin our time this morning, I just want to go to the Lord in prayer before we open up his word in this public place to preach the good news of the gospel here this morning, that we would give thanks to God for that. And also just want to pray for it myself as I preach uh, that my mind would be focused this morning. I felt like my, my mind's a bit scattered this morning, uh, and so just want to ask the Spirit to help with that as we open up God's Word. So let's pray together. Father, we are blessed to be able to be here this morning, to have the freedom we have to be able to gather together in a public place to open up your Word that teaches us about you, that teaches us about us, ourselves, in relation to who you are, God. And so, Lord, we, first off this morning, give thanks that we are able to do this. We give you thanks for the men and women over years and years who have sacrificed their lives for the sake of freedom, not only for us in this place, but uh, for our neighbors around the world, and they're still doing that today. Lord, I pray for those that are here this morning, maybe that have a family member they've lost. In light of that, I pray that you'd give them comfort and peace. And Lord, I pray that we as a people would not overlook the fact that we do have the freedoms that we have. And Lord, we thank you that the freedom we do have to gather in this place is just reflective of the ultimate freedom we have in and through Christ. And so as we even open up your word this morning, Father, I pray that you'd help us to remember that, to rest in that, to see the beauty of that, and to fight for that freedom in our hearts and in our lives. And Lord, as I open up your word and, and seek to preach your word this morning, I pray that you'd help my mind to be focused. Lord, there's nothing particularly special about what I say or how I say it. It's your spirit that uses this time in the hearts of your people. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do that today. That you would take these words, that you would help us to hear them in our ears, we'd think about them in our minds, but I pray that they would move to our hearts. That we would be impacted, changed, encouraged, convicted of sin in our life, whatever it might be today because we've been here and sat under the preaching of your word, myself included. And so, Lord, we give this time to you. We pray, God, that you would be honored by it, that this would be an act of worship to you. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, every week we preach from God's Word. We preach from the Bible. Uh, we're in a series in the book of Galatians. And so if you need a Bible this morning, would you just raise your hand? We have a few folks that would love to give a Bible to you so that you can read along with us this morning. You can just keep your hand up until they find you. And if you don't actually own a copy of God's Word, if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, we'd love for you to take that today as a gift. 
Uh, we want you to have God's word in your hands so that you can read it throughout the week. And as I pray that we would just, um, that you'd be able to read it and understand that you can learn more about God through his word and you can learn more about yourself in relation to God through his word. Well, two weekends ago, I was out of town. Uh, I wasn't here. I didn't get to, wasn't able to gather with Sojourn two weeks ago because I was out of town visiting with some friends of mine uh, that I uh, went to college with. There's, there's six of us, and we get together every year uh, and have done so for the last, I think, 13 or 14 years, uh, every year, at least once a year, just to spend time with one another. And so this year in particular, we went down to Knoxville, Tennessee, where my friend Mark lives. And now, I, I, my first two years of college, I went to uh, the University of Tennessee, which is in Knoxville. And that's where I met all of these guys, was at the University of Tennessee. And so I haven't been back to Knoxville in a while. I haven't been back to that campus in a while. And so one of the things we did while I was there was just walk around the campus and, you know, kind of remember things, reminisce a bit, uh, and walk all over the place. We went into one of the main buildings that I had class in, and we walked into some of the classrooms and looked around and, and just kind of sat down and said, man, this, this makes us want to go back to school. Well, I guess we almost want to go back to school. I, I, I loved college. I loved seminary. I loved learning. I loved having that experience in my life, but I am thankful that it's over and done with now. I joke with my wife sometimes that I, should, uh, that I want to go back and get my PhD, get my doctorate or something. Um, she doesn't think it's very funny uh, now that we have two kids and one on the way. Um, but it's fun to think about. I mean, there's lots of words that come to mind when we think about stuff like that. For me, when I think about colleges, you know, fun and friends, dorms, grades, exams, all those kinds of things that are a part of a college student's life. But one word that can ruin your plans for a semester or even ruin your expected graduation date is the word prerequisite. You get all ready to sign up for a class. You're ready to go. You know you need just maybe a couple more classes or you're kind of planning out your semester. You're like, man, I'm going to take this one. And you go in, you get ready to sign up, and you're denied being able to sign up because there's a prereq for that class. You had to have already taken another class before you can take that class, and so it, it pro- prohibits you from signing up for the class you want or need. Now listen, we all have prerequisites in life. Whether you went to college or not, all of us at different points in time through different things have prerequisites that we have to deal with. I mean, just for an example, there are prerequisites to driving a car. You have to be 16, you have to take driver's ed, you have to pass a test. All of those things are prereqs for driving. But one thing in life that does not have a prerequisite or any course requirements is God's grace. And when anyone tries to say or do otherwise, when anyone tries to say, no, there are prereqs for God's grace. No, there are course requirements to have God's grace, to be reconciled to God. When, when, when that happens, we see in the book of Galatians today that, that the Apostle Paul gets amped up about that. I mean, he gets fired up about that because he understands that there are no prerequisites. So that's what we see in this text that we're going to look at today in Galatians, that there are no prerequisites to getting God's grace, and that is always and forever good news for you and good news for me. So with that, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. 
Now, Paul has been sharing some biographical information. We've looked at at that over the last couple of weeks. And he's talked about how God has saved him, that God sought him out. And he poured out his grace on him and brought him into a relationship with him through Christ. We we looked at how, how God called and commissioned Paul to go and preach this message of grace to the Gentiles, to non-Jews. And last week we looked at an important meeting that Paul had. He went to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles in Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John, and he had this important meeting with them. And what we saw last week is that these apostles affirmed the gospel that Paul was preaching. They they didn't add anything to him. They said, there's nothing else you have to do in order to be reconciled to God. There is one gospel for all people. But then we get to this story in the text that we're going to look at today, and it begins with the word, but... But, so look at this, verse 11 through 14 is where we're going to read this morning. This is what the Apostle Paul writes to the Galatians. Verse 11, but when Cephas, now Cephas is another name for Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back. And separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, what in the world is going on here? I mean, last week, we just saw that Peter and the other apostles extended the the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas. And they said, look, we're we're all about the same gospel. The gospel that you preach, Paul, is the gospel that we preach, which is the gospel of grace. But now, all of a sudden, just a few sentences later, as Paul's telling this story to the Galatians, he says that he has to confront Peter, Peter, to his face. And then he says that, that Paul says that Peter stood condemned. I mean, this is strong language. So what's going on here? Well, Paul lays out the situation for us. Peter normally resided in Jerusalem, but for some reason he's traveled to Antioch. And Antioch is essentially where Paul's home church was. It's where he spent much of his time. It's where he was sent out from ministry. And so Peter is in the city of Antioch. And Antioch is one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. At this time. And the city of Antioch was made up of of an eclectic group of people. It was made up of, um, it was a multicultural kind of place. There were lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds from all over the place that lived in the city of Antioch. What that means then for the church that was in Antioch was that the church was made up of all different kinds of people as well. It was a multi-ethnic, multicultural church. Now, while Peter was in Antioch, Paul says he'd been eating with the Gentiles. He'd been eating with them. Now, Gentiles is a word that we see throughout Scripture that essentially just identifies anyone who's not Jewish. That's what the word Gentile means. Anyone who's not Jewish. And so Peter has been eating with them. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal to us. I mean, great, Peter's eating food with people. We all eat with different people. But it was a big deal for Peter And it was a big deal for Jewish Christians as well. See, God's law under the old covenant established what we call ceremonial laws. 
And these ceremonial laws were laws about cleanliness. They were laws about food that said that we needed to do certain things, eat certain things, not eat certain things, cook foods in certain ways, not cook them in certain ways, in order for us to be able to go before God and give worship and praise to him. It was establishing the fact that God is holy and that we can't just approach him haphazardly. We need to be pure and clean before him. For the Gentiles, though, the non-Jews, they didn't follow the law. They didn't have the law of God. And so they didn't do these kinds of things when they ate food. But what we see is that Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, he fulfills all the ceremonial law of God. When Jesus comes, he declared that all things are clean by his shed blood. Access to God has come about through Christ. A way has been made because Christ fulfilled the requirements of the law. No one else could do that. That was part of the point of the law, was to show that we can't be pure. We can't fully obey this. But Jesus comes and he does. And then he goes to the cross. And on the cross, he not only has fulfilled the, per, the per, perfection of the law, he has, he's only, not only walked in obedience, he's also been nailed to the cross to bear the wrath, the punishment that all of us deserve because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our uncleanness. And so Christ has come. He's made a way so that unholy people like you and me can stand clean and new before a holy God in his presence forever. Now, Peter knew this. Peter knew this, and Peter believed this, and Peter Peter himself even declared, if we go back to the book of Acts, that no one is unclean if they're in Christ. We could go back to the book of Acts and see that Peter even said that food itself now is not unclean because of Christ. So Peter, a man who once sought to follow these food laws that God had given, was now eating with Gentiles in a Gentile way. Maybe he was having a pulled pork sandwich. I mean, he, he was hanging out with him. He was eating things that he wasn't able to eat before. He was eating in a way that he wasn't able to eat before. He's spending time with them because he knew, he really knew, and he truly believed that Jesus had fulfilled the requirements of the law. There was nothing else that Peter had to do in order to be right with God. There was nothing else that Peter had to do or anyone else had to do in order to be able to stand in relationship with God, to come into his presence, to worship him. Nothing. See, Peter understood the freedom that the gospel brings. He understood the freedom that the gospel brings. He also understood the unity the gospel creates, bringing all people who've experienced God's redeeming grace through Christ together as one people, as one family. Peter understood all this. But then a group of people show up. And Paul says this group of people came from James. They were at least associated with James. We don't know exactly what that means if James sent them or they just attached themselves to James in Jerusalem. But these group of people come to Antioch who have some association with the, with the apostle James. And we can believe because they came from Jerusalem, from James, that they're Jewish Christians. Now, it's interesting in the text because Paul doesn't go in and tell us exactly what happened to cause Peter to do what Peter did. We don't know exactly what happened. Did they say something to Peter? Did they see him and think or say something along the lines of, Peter, what are you doing? (laughs) You shouldn't be doing that. What would the people back home think if they knew that you, the apostle Peter, were eating with Gentiles? 
Peter, you, you should remain pure and clean in what you eat and who you eat with. Even if, even if these people know Christ, Peter, what are you doing? Maybe they said that to Peter. Maybe they didn't say anything to him. And maybe instead Peter saw them and assumed what they were thinking. How often do we do that? We, we have relationships with people, people we know, people we care about, and we don't actually know what they're thinking, but we assume what they're thinking, therefore we change our behavior off that. Maybe, maybe Peter was worried about what these Jewish Christians from his hometown would think about him eating with Gentile Christians. This was still all new for them. Maybe the thought ran through his mind, what would other people back home think? Is this going to damage my ministry back in Jerusalem if word gets out that I've been hanging out with and eating meals with Gentiles? Now, maybe the seriousness of this and kind of what's going on doesn't quite hit us because we eat food with whoever, whenever. We don't probably think about this very much. We don't have food laws that we seek to follow and obey that hasn't been a part of our lives probably for most of us. But let me try and give it a, a, a little bit of a parallel example, maybe something that we could maybe relate to a little bit better. It would be like you being here in Northern Virginia, which is a multicultural area, and spending time with people of all different uh, ethnicities, people who, who know Christ from all different backgrounds, all different ethnicities, and you eat with them, and you have them in your home. Maybe you have them stay with you in your home. But then some people from your hometown show up. And in your hometown, Christians of different races do not eat together, and they do not spend time together. Maybe some of you are from some of those places. That's not something you do. You, you, they can believe in Christ, and we can believe in Christ, but we don't really associate with one another. And you see these people, and you might think, the thought might pass through your mind, oh no, what are people back home going to think? What, what if my grandmother finds out? What if my old neighbor finds out? What if my old pastor finds out what I'm doing, who I'm spending time with? I better not eat with people who are different from me at least until these people go away. At least until they go back home. Or maybe these people from your hometown come up to you and speak to you and say, man, what are you doing? Listen, you know and I know about the gospel, but you know that there are people that are racist in our hometown. And if they knew what you were doing, they wouldn't listen to anything that you have to say or anything that I have to say about the gospel. That They might think, if the gospel is the same for those kinds of people as it is for me, then I don't want anything to do with it. So for the sake of the gospel, you should separate from these other people so that we can better reach the racists with the gospel. So it sounds good. There's good motivation maybe in that. But in the midst of that, it's causing you to think, maybe I should separate. Maybe I should distance myself. That's what's going on in this situation with Peter. Whether it was just in his thoughts or whether someone actually said something to him, this is the reality of the situation. And, and Peter either hears it or thinks it when these people show up. And so what does he do? He separates himself from the Gentiles. He stops eating with them. He, he stops taking communion with them. He doesn't gather with them anymore. And we ask the question, why? Why would he do that? Does he think this is right? Does he think this is good? No, I don't think that's it at all. The reason Peter does this is because he's afraid. See, fear of man drove him to act in a way that was contradictory to the gospel he believed. The fact that Peter cared more about what other people thought, what other people might say, or what they did say, 
caused Peter to deny something he already believed, something he already knew to be true, something he had come out of his own mouth to say that all things are clean and all people are clean in Christ. And in verse 13, Paul calls this hypocrisy. See, being a hypocrite, the the biblical understanding of hypocrisy is pretending to be something you aren't or do something that you don't truly believe. So, So when we live out our gospel convictions in one situation and then deny them or cover them up in another situation, we're practicing hypocrisy. When we fear social ridicule, when we fear ostracism, we tend to play the hypocrite. Covering up what we truly believe because we believe that will make things go easier for us. We can act like the gospel of grace isn't true. It would be easier, Peter thought. It would be easier. In this moment, I don't know how long I'm going to be in Antioch. I don't know how long these other people are going to be in Antioch. But if I just separate from the Gentiles for a little while, it will go easier for me. After all, it is just eating together. What's the big deal? But as one pastor puts it, when the fear of people overcomes the fear of God, we are likely to deny the gospel. When the fear of people overcomes the fear of God, we are likely to deny the gospel. And Paul sees it as exactly that. Paul knows these old food laws have been taken care of, that Christ has fulfilled all of them, and and eating together isn't that big of a deal any longer. But what Paul sees in this is that Peter, through his actions, is denying the gospel of grace. And so Paul uses strong language and says, Peter, you stand condemned because of this. See, this is not some small thing, because it communicates something enormous about the gospel in a false way. It communicates something enormously false about the gospel and about grace. And and Paul knows and sees that Peter's hypocrisy is like a virus. It starts to spread and infect other people. Look at verse 13. It says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas! We're already maybe even going, Peter, why are you doing this? But now Barnabas, the same person who had come with Paul to Jerusalem, who had talked about the grace that they preached together, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So what might seem like a tiny fracture, what might seem like just a little bit of a bump in eating with Gentiles and associating with people different than us was becoming a widening or would become a widening, gaping hole and eventually shatter everything. So Paul knows he has to say something. Now let me stop for a second and just make sure that we understand what Peter and others are doing is the fact that they're missing a key element of the gospel, what the gospel accomplishes, the effects of the gospel. Flip over just a few pages in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. It's probably two or three pages over. It's the next book. In Ephesians chapter 2, In the first ten verses, we learn what we've been preaching over these last few weeks, that it's by grace alone in Christ alone. It's by grace through faith in Him alone that anyone is reconciled to God. We are all dead in our sin, but God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive in and through Jesus. That's what verses 1 through 10 tell us. There's nothing we do. It's all what God has done so that we can't boast. It's a gift from him. But then in verses 11 through 16, Paul says this, and he's speaking specifically at this point to Gentile believers. But he's reminding them of the effects of the gospel in their life. Look at what he says here. Just listen to this. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, Paul says this, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which means basically that this is a lot of what the Galatians are dealing with. That someone is pointing out the fact that you're different than us. You don't follow the law of God. Circumcision was kind of a mark for that. It says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Both of us, both Jew and Gentile, has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Listen to this, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. For what purpose? That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. One people. One people. Jesus is our peace, both Jew and Gentile. He has demolished and torn down this wall of hostility. It's an amazing picture of what the gospel accomplishes in the lives of people. See, the gospel of grace creates unity. It creates one family by grace with no additional requirements. And Peter knows that. Peter knows that. But his actions deny it. See, in separating from the Gentiles, it's communicating something false about the gospel and what it accomplishes for everyone. And to Paul, this is serious. And it's public Because Peter's a public figure. And it's a culture-shaping issue for the church. And so, Paul confronts Peter publicly. He has to. Now, in our passive-aggressive world, where we like to critique via Facebook and blogs and Twitter, we rebuke people through those things, this seems really strong to us. That Paul would go to Peter face-to-face, it says. I mean, they're looking at each other. Face-to-face to to confront him seems intense. But listen, Paul is not seeking to shame Peter. See, what Paul's seeking to do is to preserve the gospel. Just like we looked at last week, he's seeking to preserve the gospel, not only for the church, but in his brother Peter's heart. He wants to see the gospel preserved, and so he confronts him in this way. Now, there's a few things that we can learn from this text. There's a few things that I want to point out, but the first one is this. Hard conversations are worth having when the gospel is on the line. Hard conversations are worth having when the gospel is on the line. Paul was not afraid to confront Peter in a very clear way, in a significant way, because the stakes were that high. The stakes were that high. Now, there's risk involved in this. Peter, I mean, Paul doesn't know how Peter's going to react. He doesn't know how the, the people in the church are going to react, how anybody there is going to react when he does this. But Paul knows that it's worth taking that risk to fight for the purity of the gospel, not only in the church, but also in Peter's heart, in Peter's life, in Barnabas' heart, in Barnabas' life. So what does that mean for us? It means that if the gospel is not being preached in this church, then we should address it. 
We could go back to chapter 1 if we remember that from a few weeks ago when Paul says, if anyone preaches a different gospel than the one that you've received, then let him be accursed. It's the same thing that Paul's addressing with Peter right now. Peter, you stand condemned because your actions are communicating a different gospel that you believe. And so Paul knows we have to deal with it. So the same thing is true for this church. If a hundred years from now, Lord willing, Sojourn Church still exists if Jesus hasn't come come back yet. If If we get off track with the gospel, let's address it. And that's only going to happen if we continue to preach it now so that we all know it and we can continue to help one another believe it. But it's worth having a hard conversation if the gospel's on the line. But it's not just about the public ministry of this church. It's not just about what comes from the stage when whoever is preaching the gospel. It's also about confronting and dealing with and having a hard conversation with someone if the gospel's not being believed in someone's own heart and life. We should have a hard conversation with that person. Maybe there's somebody right now that you know that their life is creating confusion about the gospel, just like Peter. See, Peter said one thing with his mouth, but did something different with his actions. So maybe there's someone right now that you know, somebody that you're in community with here, that, that, this, that their life is creating confusion about the gospel. Maybe it's something they've said. Maybe it's something that they're doing. Maybe they don't even realize it. And that's probably the case. It's probably the case. We can oftentimes, as we said before, be blind to our own blindness. We don't always see how we're living contradictory or hypocritically to what we say we believe. That's why we need one another to come and say, brother, sister, I love you too much to let you to continue to go down this path of living out and walking in a way that's contradictory to what I know you truly believe. And so in love, for the sake of others, to preserve the gospel in the hearts of others, Go and talk to them, even if it's a hard conversation, even if you don't know how it'll be received. That's what Paul's doing. In love, he's going to Peter and saying, brother, brother, do you see what's going on here? So hard conversations are worth having when the gospel's on the line. The second thing we learn is this. We can all fall out of step with the gospel. We can all fall out of step with the gospel. I mean, this is the apostle Peter we're talking about. Peter who stood on the mountain with Jesus and saw him transfigured to his future glory self. Peter who, who was restored by Jesus after denying him three times. Peter who stood up and preached the first sermon and saw 3,000 people come to know Christ on that day and saw thousands of people baptized and more and more people come to Christ. This is Peter we're talking about. Any of us can fall out of step with the gospel. We can go back to Ephesians 2. Remember what Paul said, what I just read in Ephesians chapter 2, what the gospel creates. It creates one people united by grace in Jesus who is our peace. Now, go back to Ephesians chapter 4. Listen to these words that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Live your life that matches up with what God's done in your life, the grace that you've received. Let your life exemplify the fact that you've been called by God, you've been made new. That's what he says in verse 1. Verse 2, do it with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you recall to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. 
Paul there after talking about the, the, the unity of the gospel that, that, that Jesus has purchased for us. Here says, look, it, you need to be eager to maintain that unity. Jesus has purchased it for you. It's, he's made it possible. The dividing wall of hostility has been torn down, but now we need to be eager to maintain that. We need to strive to do it, and we do it with humility and gentleness and patience. We bear with one another in love, knowing that there are going to be times where we offend one another, we hurt each other's feelings, we step on one another's toes, we fall out of step with the gospel, but when we're eager to maintain this unity, we can live out the way that God has called us to live as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, flip back over to Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. This is what Paul says there. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What Paul's saying is, Peter, you're living in the freedom of the gospel. Brother, you know it. You know it. You've experienced it. You've preached it. You've taught on it. You, you know the freedom of the gospel. How now can you ask others to become enslaved once again to a law you know that Christ fulfilled already? See, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel looks like striving to maintain gospel unity and have gracious community. But when we take for granted the unity of the gospel, when we take for granted the freedom that Jesus has purchased for us, what we do in those moments is we re-raise the walls of hostility between one another. And when we do that, we're not in step with the gospel. On the way to my parents' house, there's a street that you have to turn onto. It's called Stoneheather Drive. And you turn on this street, and, and after all the winter weather has come and gone, there are potholes all over the place on this road, this certain stretch of road. I mean, they're all over. The, there's like a bazillion potholes, and it's really hard to avoid them, especially at night. You can't see them, and so if you're trying to weave, you're doing like a slalom course on this road, try not to cross the double yellow line, but it's almost impossible to avoid these potholes. There's small ones and there's big ones, and if you hit a big one just right or you drive over them over a period of time, it's really going to jack with your car. And, and it might cause you to lose the alignment in your wheels. And, and when your wheels are not aligned properly, your car doesn't perform the way it's meant to. And your tires wear unevenly and can wear out a lot quicker. When you and I forget the unity and the freedom of the gospel, we are becoming out of step with the gospel because we're hitting potholes all along the way. We're not aligned. And when we're not aligned, we become ineffective and we don't live in the peace and the joy that God provides through Christ. That's what Paul is fighting for in this conversation with Peter. It's why he's writing it to the Galatians. Because there's these other people that have come into the church in Galatia and are telling them there's something else. You need to do something more. And, and Paul is saying, no, look, I even talked to Peter about this. So I'm reminding you once again that Jesus has already accomplished this for us. There is true unity. There is true freedom. But just like potholes in the dark, you and I can stumble out of step with the gospel like Peter, like the Jewish Christians in a significant way, oftentimes without even realizing it. See, we hit potholes and we get out of step with the gospel when we say or believe something like, I'm closer to God because of who I am. I'm closer to God because of what I do or what I don't do. We have a list of things we do or we don't do. That's why I'm closer to God. We hit potholes when we think or believe that. Or when we look at someone else. 
and think or say, he or she must not be as close to God as I am because of who they are, because of what they do or don't do. We hit potholes when we think good Christians do this. Good Christians do these things. Or, I better not do this because that's not what good Christians do. We hit potholes when we elevate cultural preferences to the place of gospel significance. When we say, oh, you have to play this kind of music. You have to sing these kinds of songs. You have to dress in this kind of way. If you're not overly expressive in your worship, then you must not be close to God. If you're overly expressive in your worship, you must just be putting on a show. Whenever we raise cultural preferences in the church to the place of gospel significance, we hit potholes. When we raise our religious traditions to the place of non-negotiables, we hit potholes. We hit potholes and we fracture off as a church because we have a hard time being in community with people who are different than us. Whether that's racially, whether that's politically, socioeconomically, whatever it happens to be, when we find it difficult to be in community with one another and we fracture off because of that, we've hit a pothole. We've become out of step with the gospel. We hit potholes when we live in or promote disunity among brothers or sisters in any form or fashion. When we promote disunity by talking about one another behind our backs, by distancing distancing ourselves from one another, not willing to have difficult conversations, not willing to seek reconciliation. When we create or promote disunity, we've hit potholes. We've fallen out of step with the gospel. Listen, sojourn, any time that you or I allow our differences with one another and that we have differences, whenever we allow our differences with one another, whatever they may be, whatever they may be, whether we think they're big things or little things, whenever we allow them to become disqualifying characteristics of community, being in community with one another, we become out of step with the unity and the freedom that Jesus purchased for us. We come, become out of step with grace. Sojourn, God is not forming a Christian subculture. That's not his goal or plan for the church. He is conforming us together to the image of his son by convicting us of real sin. He's conforming us to the image of his son by reminding us of his insane grace. And he's conforming us to the image of his son together by helping us to walk in the light of our new, unshakable identity in Christ. The gospel has formed a new people. It's unified us together, not by rules and regulations that we follow, no matter how good we might think that those things are, how helpful we might think that they are. The gospel has unified us together as a new people made up of a diversity of all kinds of people, all because of grace. It's the wonderful tapestry, global tapestry of redeeming grace. And it's worth fighting for. That's what Paul is doing here. Another another pastor says this. He says, Christian living is a continual realignment process. Christian living is a continual realignment process. What that means is that throughout our lives, as we seek to walk with Christ in community together, is that we understand that we are going to need to continually see our hearts realigned to the gospel of grace. To see our minds come back to that. Because there are many potholes along the way that are going to seek to knock us out of line and out of step with the gospel. And the way that we do that, the way that we realign our hearts, is we do exactly what Paul does here. Which leads us to our third and last thing that we learn in this text. The third thing we learn is that grace wins the day. 
Grace wins the day. What Peter and these other Jewish Christians were doing was anti-gospel. It communicated a two-class Christianity. It made the Gentile Christians in Antioch confused over what was going on and what it really meant. It seemed like, well, now our ethnic background is really important. Aggressive rule following must be really important. But notice what Paul does in verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Paul starts off saying to Peter, Look, we think we're different. We think that we're better because we're God's chosen people. We have the law. We're the ones the law has been given to. We aren't like those Gentile sinners who don't have the law and don't try to keep the law. But then he gets to the rest of the verse. Verse 16, yet, yet we we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. No one is justified. No one is made right with God by doing works of the law. And works of the law are anything we try to do, any moral law, anything we try and do or bring before God to be made right with him. In this case, it's eating or not eating certain kinds of foods. And Peter's actions and those that follow him communicated something dangerous about the gospel, something dangerously wrong about the gospel. What they were doing, haphazardly probably, not even thinking about it, was communicating that Jesus by himself cannot make you right with God. You need to do something else. You need to follow the law. You need to eat certain kinds of food fixed in certain kinds of ways. What it communicated was that there are prerequisites for grace, that there are course requirements to grace and continuing to know God. But notice what Paul does and doesn't do. What Paul doesn't do is just seek to address the behavior. He he could just be like, Peter, stop it. Stop doing this. You're messing everything up. You're jacking everything up. Peter, don't do this. That's not what Paul does. Paul addresses Peter's heart. He says, Peter, you've forgotten the gospel and the grace that has allowed you, Peter, to sit at God's table. The grace that has allowed you, Peter, to sit at God's table. Look at the rest of verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also, Paul's saying, so you, Peter, so me, Peter, also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Peter, you know that it's not by doing anything. You know that it isn't about your pedigree or your background or your heritage. You know, Peter, that the way that any person, including you, is made right with God is in and through faith in Christ and Christ alone. Paul's point is this. Faith does not supplement following the law, and following the law does not supplement faith. Faith replaces our works because Christ fulfills the law completely and perfectly for us. And by faith alone, we can take hold of Christ's righteousness and take it as our own. That's the reality of the gospel is that we can't do anything to have righteousness. We never will, but Christ has perfect righteousness. He's, he's fulfilled the law completely, and he offers us that righteousness through pay, faith. So Paul wanted to make sure that Peter continued to understand that. Paul wants to make sure the Galatians understand that. Paul wants to make sure that you and I understand that. Verse 16 is the central claim to this whole letter. Because what it establishes is that all people in all time are made right with God, are declared righteous by faith alone in Christ alone. And that is grace. Always, from beginning to end, it's what Christ has done. We never move on from that. 
Sojourn, at the end of the day, Peter and these other people were being self-righteous. They're being self-righteous. They thought they had something better because of their background their pedigree. They thought that they had something better because of the law that they had or the, the law they were trying to obey. They thought they were better because of their own personal holiness. But listen, self-righteousness is a rival to grace. It's a rival to grace. It is the rival of grace because it forces people into bondage, trying to meet a standard that's impossible and unnecessary to meet, and it is dangerous to community. Whenever we look at someone else and say, you need to meet my standards, you need to do what a good Christian can do, here's a list of things to do and follow, and we're being self-righteous, we're placing ourselves above someone else, or have our own standards that we're trying to call other people to meet, and we stiff-arm people, and we keep people at a distance, and we separate from ourselves from people who we think aren't being, quote-unquote, good Christians. But that's not grace. We have to understand that we're all on a journey we're all at different places in our walk with Christ. And what our hope is, what our goal is, is to help one another become more like Jesus, not more like us. See, the truth of the gospel in verses 15 and 16 reminds us of who we are apart from Christ. It levels the playing field for everyone, saying, look, there's no one that has anything up on anybody else. Because we all need grace. We all need grace. Nothing else will suffice. And when we understand that, it dismantles any notion of us deserving grace. It dismantles any notion of self-righteousness because we realize we don't have any. The only prereq that all people actually have is that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That none is righteous, no, not one. That before God, all stand condemned of their sin and rebellion and are without hope in this world. That's the one thing we all have in common that we bring to the table. The good news is that Jesus has overcome. And what God requires, he provides for us in and through Christ. What can wash away your sin, brother and sister? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make you whole again? Not following rules, not doing certain things. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So let me ask you this this morning. Are you convinced right now today that Jesus' death and his resurrection is the only means for you to be right with God? Are you trusting in Jesus alone right now for your standing before God? Or are you putting your hope and your faith and your baptism or your religious experience or the fact that you do live a life separate from the world? Are you putting your faith and your family history or your Bible knowledge or your Bible reading plan or your theology or your good works or your good behavior? Are you putting your faith in your morality? Saying how I live, that's how I know I'm right with God. What is your faith in this morning? See, there's something important we have to recognize here when Paul talks about believing in Christ alone, having faith in Christ alone, and not seeking to live out things by the works of the law. This faith is not just a cognitive faith. It's not saying, well, yes, I believe with my mind that Jesus died on the cross for my sin and rose again from the dead. What he's talking about here is believing into Christ. It's a deep trust, a deep commitment I could look at one of these chairs on the front row and I can say, I have faith, I believe that this chair is going to hold me. Because when I look at it, I see it's a chair and that's what chairs do. They hold people up. I can see all of you sitting in chairs and say, well, the chairs must work because nobody's falling on the ground right now. So I have faith, I believe that if I went and sat in that chair, it's going to hold me. But that's not faith. 
That's a cognitive understanding of what a chair does. Faith is me actually going and sitting in the chair and letting it hold me. See, if I, if I look at that chair and say, I think it can hold me, I believe it can hold me, but just in case it can't, I'm going to put some support on the left side and the right side, put some support in the back, put a cushion on the floor just in case I fall. When I do that, my faith is not in the chair, it's in what I can do to mitigate falling. See, the faith that saves is not the faith that adds anything to Jesus. It's a faith that says, I have nothing but Jesus. I have nothing but Jesus and nothing but what he has done for me. Saving faith is a falling on to Jesus, depending wholly and completely on what Jesus' death and what his resurrection has accomplished for me. That's the kind of faith that Paul is reminding Peter of. That's the kind of faith he's reminding the Galatians of. That's the kind of faith he's reminding you and me of. And it's not a faith that's just in the past. It's a present faith today. Brother, sister, what are you believing right now? What are you believing right now? At the end of the day, when you and I get out of step with the gospel, when we drift to self-righteousness, when we promote prerequisites for grace, I believe it's because we're living in fear and not freedom. We're living in fear just like Peter and not freedom. Grace is too outrageous for us. There must be something else I, I have to do. There must be something else that I can control about my relationship with God. And when I do that, when I do that, I expect others to conform to the laws and the rules and the rituals and the preferences that I've created and I'm seeking to maintain in addition to grace. And hypocrisy is like a virus that spreads quickly. But the unity and freedom that Jesus has purchased means that there is nothing we can do or ever have to do. He's accomplished it completely to reconcile us to God and to maintain our reconciliation to God. It's all what Christ has done. And now if you and I are in Christ, we are a new people, a part of God's global family because of Jesus and Jesus alone. So what that means is this, is that there's nothing that we have to do. There's nothing that you have to do. There's nothing that I have to do. We don't have to perform for one another or do certain things to be in relationship with each other either. We talk about it every week. We are not only reconciled to God, we're also reconciled to one another. There's no, there's no check boxes we have to go through. There's no hoops we have to jump over to be in relationships with brothers and sisters. It comes back to the fact that it's been Christ and Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, we need to remind one another of this grace over and over and over again. And when grace is championed in the community, grace always wins the day. It's medicine to our soul. It overcomes condemnation. It pulls us back from legalism. It keeps us from licentiousness. It's amazing, it's good, it's true, it's ridiculous, it's outrageous, it's never-ending. Never it's all, for, all sufficient for all people in all time for all eternity. You can't out God's grace and you can't outdo what God's grace accomplishes. So let me ask you two questions just to think about this week as we close and continue to worship together. Think about these two questions this week. Really ask God to reveal these things to you. Where might there be self-righteousness in your heart right now towards someone else? Where might there be self-righteousness in your heart right now towards someone else? And secondly, where might you need a gospel realignment? What potholes have you fallen into? You've gotten out of line. Where might you need a gospel realignment? 
Sojourn, there are no prerequisites for grace, no course requirements to maintain. It is free, undeserving, and it's for all people. So let's be a church, let's be a family that lays down self-righteousness and champions the outrageous grace that God has given us in and through Jesus. And to begin to do that today, we're going to come forward to the table and we're going to celebrate in taking communion together. This is a meal of unity. It's a meal of grace. And none of us come to the table today because we're good. We come to the table today because we have received God's grace. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, if the anthem of your heart is, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, then come quickly to the table and rejoice in the fact that you don't come alone this morning. God's grace is sufficient for everyone and anyone and everyone. So you can look around and praise God that there's others that will come and eat the bread, symbolizing Christ's body given for you, and drink the cup, symbolizing Christ's blood shed for you. As you eat this bread and drink this cup this morning, you're declaring to yourself and to all of those around you that there's nothing you have, nothing you bring. It's all of what Christ has done. And if you're not a follower of Christ, I just ask that you not come forward to take communion because this is a declaration of our desperate need for God's grace. What I want to call you to this morning is to respond to that free gift of grace. God is calling you to himself. He's offering that to you this morning. So just hang out in your seat. If you don't yet know Christ and pray, ask God to save you today, putting holy your trust in Jesus this morning. And if you have questions about what it means to know and follow Christ, please come talk to me or any of our other leaders. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you about that. Those of you that will come forward, you can come forward to the front or you can go to the two stations in the back and tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you, to pour out his grace on you, will be spoken over you. Let's pray. Father, we... Thank you for the book of Galatians. We thank you that as we walk through this book over these next few weeks, over these next few months, that we are going to be pounded over and over and over again with your unrelenting grace. Because even when one week passes by and we've heard about grace and we've been reminded of grace, Monday rolls around, and Tuesday rolls around, and Thursday afternoon and Friday night roll around, and we've forgotten it. And we add things to it. We forget about your outrageous grace, your scandalous grace, that there's nothing that we bring to the table. There's no prerequisites for grace. To be in relationship with you, it's what Christ has done in him alone. So I pray that we as a community would come back to it over and over and over again and remind one another of that truth, remind one another of that reality. Father, I pray that you bring conviction where there's self-righteousness in our hearts right now. I pray you bring conviction where we are believing that there are prerequisites that we have to meet or that someone else needs to meet. Father, I pray that you'd realign our hearts. Will we we help each other to do that? Help us to help each other do that. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you do a work in us that we might be a free people, a unified people because of grace and grace alone. Father, we love you. We thank you that you love us even when we are acting foolish and running away from you, that you never turn away from us, you never leave us, you never forsake us because of what Jesus has accomplished. He declared it is finished. Help us to rest in that this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.